0: All right, if you'll open your Bibles to Romans 8, this morning our passage is verses 28 through 30. Again, we're continuing in a Romans 8 series. If you're using a scripture, uh, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find the scripture on page 652. Again, we'll be reading Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. our gracious and, and sovereign Heavenly Father. Lord, our thanks cannot be enough. Lord, you have called us, you've chosen us. Lord, use your, use your word this morning to conform us more like your Son. God, change us and mold us. Lord, may we be open and ready to respond. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Well, this morning I want to begin with a, a, a question Uh, A question specifically for you parents out there. And that question is simply this. Have you ever left your child behind? You don't got to raise your hand. There's no condemnation here. You're under Christ. That is, you forgot to bring them home. You accidentally left one of your children at the store. Or perhaps you intentionally forgot them at the store. Now, I know some of you, if that's never happened to you before, or you don't have kids, you're like, how, can, how in the world could that ever happen? How could you forget one of your kids? Well, let me tell you, as a parent, that's a lot easier to do than you think, especially here at church, when both parents drive separately, and then leaving to go home, each parent thinks the other parent has their child. Mom gets in the car and even asks the older brother, where's Jack. Oh, he's with dad. While in reality, Jack's still in the church basement, hiding, playing, doing something. That would never happen to my wife and I. We would never leave one of our kids behind. Well, what we're going to see here in these verses, these two verses in particular, is that God never, never, never leaves any of his children behind. He never accidentally forgets them or intentionally forsakes them. In fact, according to Romans 8, 29-30, we see here this unbreakable purpose of God. And that unbreakable purpose that God has for His children is this. It is to bring you all the way home to glory for all eternity. What a purpose that we see. It is to bring you all the way home to glory for all eternity. Romans 8 declares that what God has begun in us, he will complete it. Paul even tells us this later on in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. God will bring us all the way home to glory for eternity. Now, how many are you excited about that? God will never leave me behind. He will never accidentally forget me. He will never intentionally forsake me. You don't ever have to worry about being left behind. You don't ever have to wonder if God's going to forget you or forsake you. You don't ever have to doubt God's sovereign purpose being completed in your life. Paul tells us here in verse 28, the verse we looked at last Sunday, that our God, our sovereign God, our creator God, is working all things together for our good including good things and bad things and the good that God is working in your life in my life is to make us glorious like his son Jesus Christ that's how much God loves us that's how much he cares for us that's how much he's working in our lives. And we'll see next week, or actually in a few, t- couple more weeks, that nothing can ever separate us from this love of God. But how can we be so sure about it? How do we know, I mean really know, that God loves us this much? How can we be so sure God's unshakable promise in verse 28 is really true what's the guarantee after all Paul says in verse 28 and we know but how can we really know for certain especially when it seems like God is not working all things together for your good it seems like God has forgotten you he has forsaken you so how then can we know this promise in verse 28 Well, the promise of verse 28 stands on the foundation of verses 29 and 30. To say it another way, if verses 29 and 30 aren't true, then verse 28 isn't true either. In fact, if verses 29 through 30 aren't true, then we're in a whole lot of trouble in our lives. We are in big trouble, and there is absolutely no hope for us in the future. We may as well go home and just eat, drink, and be merry and live it up now and live for the moment if this isn't true. But verses 29 through 30 are true. That's what Paul wants us to know here. And he's telling us how true they are, how certain they are. God's promise in verse 28 and God's purpose for your life in verses 29 through 30 rests squarely on God's character. And our God is sovereign. Our God is mighty to save. Our God is holy. He is just and he is worthy to be trusted. And so what Paul writes for us now in these two verses is meant to To encourage us is meant to give us confidence in our God and comfort in his loving, sovereign purpose for our lives. These verses are meant to humble us, encourage us, and motivate us to persevere in this lifetime. To persevere in our hope for the glory to come. Not to give up the faith, not to quit in the journey that God has us living now. Why? He's working all things together for our good. And that's in the present tense, but it doesn't come to fruition or a climax or culmination until we get to glory. And God, listen, His purpose for you is to bring you all the way home to glory for all eternity. That's His purpose. In other words, these verses here, and in particular these two verses, 29 and 30, are not meant to make us proud as if somehow we earned them and that we did it and we had anything to do with it. It's not meant to make us divisive and, and, and so discord because these verses are very debatable and there's different interpretations as to what these even words may mean. They're not even meant for us to be complacent about this life. Well, if God's going to do that, man, I can just live any way I want. No, no, no. Just the opposite. These verses should produce the feeling. It should motivate within us, even, and produce an awe and a wonder and a feeling that our God is so much bigger and greater than we can ever imagine, than what we even dare to think. And so I want us to come to these two verses again. I want us to read them one more time with an open heart and an open mind. Look with me again at what Paul writes in verses 29 through 30. He says, for whom he foreknew. And Paul is speaking of God here. The the pronoun he is is all God. And you see God all through these verses. He's the one that's doing the work. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he, that is now Jesus, his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he, that is God, predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, in whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now you can't help but notice there's five key verbs in these verses, five of them, there's new, there's predestined, called, justified, and glorified, and those five words make up what we could call, what we're calling this morning, God's unbreakable purpose in bringing you home to glory for all eternity. You could think of it this way it's a chain of five links that begins in eternity past and it ends in eternity future. These five words are true for every believer and only for believers, and it describes God's purpose to bring every believer home to glory. For all eternity. So what I want us to do this morning is look at these five specific words. What God is doing for us. How he is accomplishing his purpose for my life and your life as believers in Jesus Christ. Look at this unbreakable purpose with me. The very first link in the chain is God foreknew you. God foreknew you. You Perhaps you're right now going, God what me? What did God do? I mean, what does that mean? God foreknew me. Well, because this first word is the most important, and yet it's the most misunderstood of the five words. So what does this mean? Well, some people would teach that God knew beforehand who would believe on Christ. That is, uh, he, he knew it way beforehand. In eternity past, he saw beforehand who would believe on Christ. And it was these people whom God predestined. In other words, they would say that, that God looked down the corridor of history. He saw who would choose to believe on Christ. And it was those people then he decided to choose for salvation. But I would throw out to you a couple of problems with that kind of thinking. And there are good people that think that way. Good theologians, Bible scholars, whatever. But I, here's, here's a couple of thoughts about that. Such foreknowledge is man-centered. Such foreknowledge is works-based. And here's why I say that. It makes God's eternal purpose depend... On the fickle will of sinful people. Because if God only predestines what He knows that we will actually do in the future, then salvation is based on what? Man's choice is based on our work of choosing Christ, not on God's work for us in Christ. I would also suggest that in the context of all of God's Word, such foreknowledge is not consistent with other teaching in the Bible. I don't have time to go into all that, but let me just say it this way. It it goes against God's word that shows apart from God, graciously and miraculously intervening into our lives. No one seeks Him. No one chooses God on their own. We saw that already here in Romans 8. We looked at the, the mind of the flesh. And how that mind thinks and operates and is hostile to God. We can't even please God. We're at enmity with God. We're at war with God. Paul tells us early in Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous. There's no good thing in me. So apart from God intervening in my life, I would never choose Him. Why? Because as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, we are what spiritually? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's my spiritual condition from the moment of birth. I am born that way. So I would suggest that Paul cannot mean that here in the context of Romans 8. Paul cannot mean that God's foreknowledge is merely or only foresight. Why? Because in eternity past, let me tell you, God foresaw every human being who would exist throughout history. But not everyone is conformed to be like Christ, are they? We know that. And not everybody goes to heaven when they die. We know that as well. So God's foreknowledge has to be more than just mere foresight or awareness of what people will do or not do. So what then does it mean that God foreknew us. Well, look here in your notes. You can think of it this way. It begins with knowing equals loving. Ultimately, it ends in choosing. Foreknowledge means to choose unconditionally and to know intimately beforehand. What Paul is telling us here with this word is that in eternity past, God chose you unconditionally. Hallelujah! And the cool thing is, God didn't choose you the way a computer chooses you or the way you get chosen for a mass mail and catalog. No, no, no. God chose you by knowing you and setting his love on you, setting his heart on you. In other words, God made the first move toward you. He foreknew you. He set his love on you in advance. God could see that you would never love him first. But your hard heart my hard, rebellious, prideful, sinful heart didn't stop God. God started loving me and you a long time ago, before we even knew it. In fact, this word no here, at the end of for, knowledge, for, new," take the word know. That word know, in the context of all of God's word, and especially in the Old Testament, has the idea of knowing intimately It means to know with affection or to know in a loving way. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Adam knew Eve. Now, that doesn't mean that he merely knew who she was by name or knew of her. After all, she was the only woman on earth. So, of course, Adam knew who she was. How could you miss her? She's the only other human being. No, it means Adam knew Eve in what way? Intimately, affectionately, personally, in a loving way. God says to his people later on in one of the minor prophets, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known out of all the nations or families of the earth. Does that mean God doesn't know who all the other nations are on the earth? Well, of course not. This is God speaking. God knows the names Of all the peoples on the earth, of all peoples, of all nations. It means God knows his people, specifically in Amos, talking about the children of Israel. He knows them intimately, and affectionately, and personally, in a way he does not know the other nations. That's why the NIV translates the same verse in Amos 3.2 as, You only have I, not knew, but now have I chosen of all. The families on the earth. So, in this context, to know is to love and to choose. And so, here in Romans eight, Paul is using this kind of biblical language to describe God's devoted attention to us and His loving choice of us. And it's interesting; you probably fi- figured it out by now. We saw Paul adds the prefix to the word "know," and what is that prefix for? And the reason he does that is to signal that God knew us and chose us before we ever knew him or chose him. In fact, God set his love on us before time began. You go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, what does Paul tell us? God chose us in Christ before what? The foundation of the world or the creation of the world. We're talking about something that God did in eternity past, before time began, before your life began. How amazing is our God? How awesome is He? Here's the point that I want you to take away with on this. God initiated your relationship with Him. God made the first move towards you. He did not wait for you to show any interest to Him. For we would not nor could not, as one pastor writes... God was not just stuck with us. He chose us. Therefore, your place in God's purpose is secured not by what you have done for Him, but by His own infinite capacity to love, love sin infested, God hating, foot dragging sinners. This is why our response to God will always be kind of an awe struck trust. What, what am I doing here? Why does God love me like that? Doesn't he know what I'm like? Doesn't he know what I've done? And the answer is yes. And yet, he still chose you in amazing love. That great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way. I'm glad God chose me before he saw me because if he had waited until he saw me, he might not have wanted me. (laughs) Kind of like that. But God didn't wait, and I like that better. He chose you unconditionally before you came into this world. That's the first link in your chain of salvation is God foreknew you. He chose you unconditionally in eternity past. Link number two is God predestined you. Now, this is a word that scares a lot of people, predestination, predestined. But listen, there's no reason to be frightened about predestination. It's in the Bible. So God must want us to embrace this idea, this concept, and not run from it. Do you see how Paul is linking one act of God's purpose with the next? Paul writes, for whom he foreknew, he also what? Predestined. In other words, get this, it's a package deal. If you're in on one part of God's purpose, you're in on all of God's purpose. And do you see the prefix in predestined, like the prefix in for new? This tells us we're still back in eternity past what God's doing for us. So God loved us way back then, still in another way, Paul is telling us. You say, well, how? God predetermined our final destination. That's the essence of predestination. What is a destination, by the way? A destination. It's the final stop, right? It's where your trip or journey is going to end. And the prefix pre means before. So what does it mean now to predestinate something? Like your vacation coming up this summer. Well, it means to decide beforehand where you're going to end up on your vacation. Perhaps like Disney World. Or even like Destiny, Florida. There's even a town. How many have been to Destiny? Yeah. All right. Same idea. All right. Paul is telling us that God has predestined you, in other words, to, get this, reach a certain destination. And you say, well, what is the destination God has set for me? Well, in the context of Romans 8, look at it coming up on the screen or in your notes, predestination is God's sovereign determination before the foundation of the world to conform you to be like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, just think about, stand back for a moment, and just think about what God is doing for you here. When God chose us, He also decided for us how it will all turn out. That we will be with Christ, like Christ, to the glory of Christ forever. And Jesus will not be ashamed to be our brother. He'll be the first among many of us in glory who are like Christ and with Christ to the glory of Christ. Man, that's how much God loved us. God redefined or redirected our destiny as one with the glorious destiny of his own son. That is amazing. Aren't you glad God determined your destination? Aren't you glad he didn't leave your destination up to you? Think about it. If we're all honest, I think we'd have to admit we have the spirituality of hamsters apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So if God had left my destiny, your destiny, up to us alone, what would we do with it? For a glimpse of that, you only got to do is just take a look at humanity throughout history. Just look at us today. Look at the way we live today. Look at what we do with our bodies. Look at the way we use our time, our money, and our opportunity in life for our own selfish pleasures and purposes. No wonder the Bible tells us, left to ourselves and left in our sin, our destiny is what? What is our destiny? If we are left in our sins and left to ourselves, our destiny is condemnation and damnation. That's the destiny we have chosen for ourselves because of our sinfulness. So I, for one, am thankful God did not leave my destiny up to me. But God in his grace not only saw us thrashing about in the misery of our sins, and he set his love on us, but he also resolved... I will not leave them there as they are. I will put honor upon them. I will conform them to the image of my own son. And I will bring them all the way home to glory with my son. And so I'm very thankful that God sovereignly determined my destination to make me like Christ, beginning now in this lifetime, and to bring me all the way home to glory with Christ. I am so thankful for that. The third link in your chain of salvation is God called you. God called you. Paul writes in verse 30, "...moreover whom he predestined, these he also called." Now, you may notice here with this word, there's no prefix attached to this verb because Paul is now describing our actual experience of things in the here and now. His sweep of thought moves from the heart of God in eternity past to the action of God in our present lives. And so when God calls us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it's proclaimed, we respond by choosing to accept Christ by faith. In fact, get a load of this. God even gives you the faith to respond. And so if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I I know sometimes it may have felt as though you were reaching out to find God. You were searching for him, and you found him. But Paul, what he's doing here with this word, he's going beneath that, and he sees beyond our choice to respond, and he's explaining what lay beneath our heart cry for Jesus. And that is God was calling you. That's why this call, in fact, in the Bible, there's what sometimes is referred to as two types of call in the Bible, and that's why this call is referred to as the effectual call of God and here's what I mean by that word this is all this word means is that when God calls it's effective that's pretty simple right when God's calling it's effective in doing what in moving our hearts to respond in faith to the gospel this call in other words the call of God the effectual call it always accomplishes its purpose of opening our blind eyes opening our hearts to see our need for Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now, this call is somewhat different than the, what is referred to the other call, the general call of the gospel that goes out to all the world, all of humanity. This is the, the universal invitation. And it's seen in verses like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or when Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Man, he's saying that to all the world. Or when Jesus says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the general call of God to everybody, and it may be accepted or rejected. And we, we see that all the time. But here in Romans 8, Paul's talking about not the general call. He is referring to the effectual call of God on those that he foreknew and that he predestined. In other words, you could think of it this way. It's the saving call of God, whereby the Holy Spirit woos you and wins you and draws you to Jesus. It's the effectual call that opens your heart to Jesus and gives you the ability to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. How else can we explain the fact that as self-focused and self-excusing sinners, we finally come to our senses and cry out, Jesus, save me. how else do we find ourselves finally admitting everything in my life has been wrong? I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Jesus, please forgive me and save me from my sins. I mean, how does does a sinful human heart ever come to that admission? Folks, it's only by the grace of God calling out to you, intervening in your lives. There we were, self-righteous sinners, with our destiny to a place called hell. We were dead in our sins, and we were hostile toward God in our hearts, but oh, God had other plans. He set his love on us. He determined that we would be like his son. He drew near to you through the gospel. He spoke to your heart and you heard his call and you couldn't help yourself but respond to his amazing grace. Aren't you thankful that God sovereignly called you? And yet, listen to me carefully. And yet, God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility we still must respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the same time, listen to me, human responsibility is not equal to God's sovereignty. As if we, as if I, as a human being, incapable of playing tug-of-war with God when it comes to his call in my salvation. Because when God calls, it's always effective in moving our hearts to respond. Now, if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, this is a drag. Because God hasn't done that for me yet. And if he started that in eternity past, I'm too late already. I don't have a chance. Man, if you're here and you're thinking that, I say to you, that's good. And here's why. Because it may be very well that God is stirring in your heart at this very moment. And He is calling you. And if that's the case, here's what you need to do today. You need to face up to your own sinfulness. And you need to see your need for Jesus Christ. And you need to respond in faith by repenting of your sin and trusting Christ for your salvation. Listen to what God is saying to you at this very moment. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Jesus tells us in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if God is pricking your heart, then respond to his call. The fourth link in your chain of salvation is God justified you. Now, why would God do that? I'm not sure I even want that. Because I'm not sure what that word means. Well, here's the reason why God justified you. Because God can't get involved with us without dealing with our sins and then declaring us righteous. That's what it means to be justified and justification let me tell you it's something we desperately need why because the people god loves are what kind of people yes sinners and we have wrecked our relationship with god but god loves us too much to accept our failure and our sinfulness as the final last word and so god says listen whatever it takes Whatever it takes, I will restore them to my favor. My love is willing to pay the price. It's willing to go the distance for you. Now, there are two mistakes that we can make at this point right here. One mistake is to think to ourselves, oh, my sins are small enough that I can offset them with my own goodness and good deeds. But the other mistake is to think, oh, man, my sins are so massive, Bruce. You don't know the half of my past. My sins are so massive that not even Christ can save me. And both that those thinkings, both that mindset is wrong. Because our goodness, yes, it is pathetic in the eyes of God. And yes, our sins are massive in the eyes of God. But thank God, Christ is greater. And his death on the cross is superior to all of it. Listen... Through the cross of Jesus Christ. God, this is what he's doing here when he's justified. He repositions us from under his wrath to under his smile. So what happened at the cross that allows God to do this so he could do this for us? Well, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him. Who's the him here? His own son, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sinned on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, here's what Paul's telling us, Jesus took your place on the cross. He became sin for us. He paid the penalty of our sins with his death on the cross. And when we respond to that gospel, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, here's what the deal is. The righteousness of Christ, then, is credited to our account in heaven while we are still sinners here on this earth. You say, how's that done? I don't know. God does it, and I love it, and I believe it, and I accept it. And as a result of that justification of being declared righteous, we are set Free from the penalty of our sins. The record is wiped clean. And there is now, as Paul now takes us all the way back to Romans 8 verse 1, there is what? No condemnation hanging over our heads. And we can now live with joy. We now live with hope for a future glory. We now live with peace with God in our hearts because though we are still sinners, thank God He declares us Righteous in his sight, based on the work and person of Jesus Christ. Awesome. Grab hold of this. What an amazing God. He set his love on me, and he chose me in eternity past. He drew me in with the cords of love, and he called me, and he justified me. What more? What next? Well, Paul now, he makes a beeline to the fifth and final link in our chain of salvation. Number five, God glorified you. We're looking here at God's plan. And His plan now directs our gaze into the future when we will be glorified in heaven, like Christ, with Christ. Just think about this. No more lying awake at night with your head on the pillow, in these haunting memories of your past that conjure up feelings of shame and remorse. Only glory. In that instant, when we fly from this world into God's presence, the blood of Jesus will rinse us completely clean, and He will perfect us with the glory of His Son. Realize Jesus did not die to make you good. Oh, no, no, he died to make us glorious like himself. You know what? When you really think about it, we have never experienced one nanosecond of sinless freedom, have we? But we will in heaven forever. And Paul is so confident about this. He is so confident that God will do this. He even puts this verb... In what tense? The past tense. He says glorified, not will glorify. In other words, Paul moves with one giant step from our justification all the way through the groanings and sufferings of this life to our glorification in heaven. Blow me over. Five amazing words when you look at these words, it's just as if Paul is, is spreading out before us a blueprint of God's plan from eternity past through time to eternity future with these five words. And here's what Paul wants you to know. These five links in God's chain of salvation are unbreakable. They're Unbreakable. Look at the structure and logic of Paul's grammar here with me. The objects of these verbs, foreknew, predestined, called, and glorified, are all the same people. And God alone is the subject of all these verbs. Now, if you're not an English professor, English buff, here's what that means. It means no one, falls through the cracks along the way home. Why? Because God is the one accomplishing it all. He's the one bringing us all the way home to glory for all eternity. Our salvation, in other words, is the work of God from beginning to end. It rests on God and not us. Therefore, we are eternally secure in our God. As one theologian writes, not one link in the chain of actual redemption is of our forging, or the whole would indeed be fragile. So thank God. Praise God. Salvation is of the Lord and not us. So live with confidence in the unbreakable purpose of God. The purpose of God is that certain. The cross of Jesus is that powerful, and the love of God is that persistent, and that is the bedrock we stand on. So trust Him with your life. Follow Him with everything you have, and know that if God is guiding His eternal plan for our glory, then He must be guiding our present experiences in this life for our good as Paul writes in verse 28. Now, how do you respond to that amazing? How do you respond to something so spectacular as that? Let me leave you with three concluding responses to God's unbreakable purpose. Number one is to rejoice. Rejoice in God's sovereign choice to save you in Christ. I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 65:4 here. Blessed is the one God you chose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So, if you're a believer here in Jesus Christ, man, your first response is to glorify God, give him praise and glory, and rejoice in His sovereign choice to save you. Second of all, plead with God. Plead with God in prayer to save the lost and to use you in the process. That is the means by which God saves people. The gospel must be proclaimed. And prayer plays a vital part in that. Look what Paul writes in Colossians 2. I mean 4 2 through 6 he says devote yourself to prayer being watchful and thankful and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message what message the gospel message so that we may may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should be wise in the way you act toward outsiders in other words unbelievers make the most of every opportunity let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And Paul later on, he tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 3-6, this is good. What is good? And it pleases God our Savior. Notice what he writes. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And what truth is he talking about? For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for people. So plead with God in prayer to save the lost and to use you in the process. And then number three, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord today. Maybe you're here thinking, man, I'm not in on this, but I want in on this. Listen, if God is inviting you to come in, God is ready to make all this yours forever. No matter what you've done, because God loves sinners, and here's how you can get inside the love of God. you just got to empty your heart, empty your hands of all your self-righteousness and what you think you have coming to you. And with a repentant heart, trust Christ to forgive you and save you. And here's what God will do for you. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And what is God's purpose for his children? His unbreakable purpose is to bring you all the way home to glory for all eternity. And the call goes out to you to respond to that. In fact, I want to close with a video. A video that we saw at a pastor's conference just this last week. It's a video about what the gospel can do for you. Take a look at it
2: the first, uh, first day of my philosophy class. I noticed him because he stuck out. Um, he was asking very sincere and personal questions and immediately I knew that he was looking for something more um, than just learning.
3: Um, he was actually searching for truth. I had been reading books like Plato's Republic and um, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. I was like bent on this pursuit of what's, what's the good, what's the highest good in life? And I thought that if I could know what the highest good is, then I could live a great life based on that. He was just freakishly smart. i never
2: met anyone else my age who was so well-read and philosophy and so difficult to disentangle. Um, it almost felt sometimes that he was so smart that a lot of the philosophy was becoming a stumbling block. So I asked him if he wanted to read the Bible with me. And he said, sure. So we started reading through the Gospel of John together. I'm just going through and thinking about what the Bible says about Jesus, what it says about God, what it means to be a Christian, and how one can be saved. And one weekend, he came along with us to a retreat with uh,
3: with a Christian group of students. I, I thought it was a little weird, um, but I um, the main reason I, I wanted to go on this retreat was to skiing, because they were offering skiing that Saturday, and I was like, Yeah, I want to ski.
2: The passage that was preached that night was from Hosea. And the way it was presented was that, you know, God has given so much. God has bought us back. He has purchased us back when we didn't deserve it. I was just struck by how clear they were making the gospel presentation. Not only was it impacting me, but I could tell from looking at Billy that it was impacting him.
3: Hearing that talk about his, like, scandalous love, it just broke my heart. That was. That was an amazing love. Like, that was the kind of love that I was trying to live up to, and which I couldn't do. I, there was no way I could ever do it. You know, he loved me.
2: When Billy was talking to me afterwards, just crushed, I could tell that he was just broken. And Billy just looked at me and said, what can I do? And I just told him, Billy, what do you think you should do? You know, you're standing here at the foot of the cross, looking up to Christ crucified. How can you respond? And he just, he just said, yeah, you're right. And he, he bowed his head and just prayed. I didn't really know what to do, honestly. I thought, am I supposed to do something? How do I lead him through a prayer? I'd never led anyone through a prayer before. but. I didn't have to, he just bowed his head and prayed quietly and
3: and I was praying for him as he prayed. What I realized after that conference is, you know, the most important thing is not what you know, but rather what you love in life and what you're you're serving in your life and who you're serving in life. And, uh, And at that moment, you know, because of Christ's great love for me, I loved Jesus and I wanted to serve him so I just entrusted my life to to him.
2: And after he had prayed, he looked up at me and said, I wanna go read my Bible. What should I read? And so I I directed him to 1 John. I thought that'd be a good place for him to start. Um, And off he went. I went back up to the room um, where we were staying, and sure enough, he's just in there like reading his Bible, like just crying. (laughs) and just like circling all these words and just like reading through and being like, it all makes sense, it just all makes sense. He realized that all this time he'd been searching after knowledge and that that knowledge that he was seeking after was coming from pride. He wanted to know these things because he wanted to be something when in reality, we're nothing.
3: My name is Billy. I'm a Christian today because someone brought the gospel to me. Be unashamed.
1: And as we come to our own response time, opportunity for each of us here to respond how God leads in your own heart. And for those of you that are already believers, the response is simple. It's to is to rejoice in prayer and to plead with God in prayer to save your lost friends, your lost neighbors, and to use you to burden you in that process. But perhaps some of you are here and you're like, man, I'm not in on that, but I want in on that. I want in on God's love. Then respond. Cry out to God to save you. Express your heart to Him, and He will. You can cry out, Dear Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I cannot save myself. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for me. And I ask you to forgive me and save me and grant me Christ's righteousness so that I may have a relationship with you. I want Jesus to be my Savior. I want to live for him with my life. You could pray something like that. As the praise team sings, will you respond?